The year is 1860. The skies are clear, the ice caps are fuller, and the world is a bigger place. Big Ben has just finished completion. Charles Dickens has just published his new book. And Brisbane was just declared the capital of the Queensland colony. Everything is looking good. But then you get sick. (coughs) Luckily, there is new medicine. Everything from lead to arsenic extract, from fox lung to a boar's tooth. There's even new serums made from the brains of rabbits and sheep. But hey, it's not leeches, right? By understanding those subtypes, we could, we could afford a better treatment to treat individual subtypes, perhaps based on what the genetic underpinnings of, those, of that disease is. And I guess that's really what the essence of, of what genomics has enabled us to do over the last 20 years, is to understand really this hidden um, complexity within the diseases and then identify new groups or subgroups within what was once been together as a single entity. From Rare Cancers Australia, this is Radio Rare, the podcast where we share the stories of those in and around the rare and less common cancer community. I'm James Matthews, and today RCA's own Dr. Emily Isham will be sitting down and talking with Dr. Richard Tothill to discuss just how far cancer therapy has developed and where they are now as we dive into the world of cups, nets, mutations, and the human genome or, for Dr. Tothill, another day in the lab. But first, a reminder to our listeners that whilst you may be one of only a handful of people with your cancer in Australia, added together, all those rare and less common cancers make up a community of tens of thousands of people here in Australia. If you or your caregiver ever need to speak to someone, our specialist cancer navigators are here for you. Reach out on one 800 257 600 or email support at rarecancers.org.au. So we're speaking to Richard Tottle today from the University of Melbourne Department of Clinical Pathology Rare Disease Oncogenomics Laboratory. Welcome, Richard. Hi, Emily. Thanks for having me on. Not a problem. It's really lovely to speak to you today. Do you mind please just telling us a little bit about yourself and your background and how you've got to this point where you are today, please? Yeah, so I've had a bit of an unorthodox trajectory. I, um, I grew up in Western Australia um, and it was fact on a farm. I went to university in Perth at Murdoch University and I went overseas like a lot of people do from Western Australia and I was fortunate enough to land a job in London working for a pharmaceutical company and that's really where I got first introduction to DNA technologies or genomics. I brought that uh, experience back to Australia with the second bit of fortunate luck I had was to undertake a PhD at the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre in Melbourne working with Professor David Botel. And that's where I really started my career working in uh, cancer genomics and at that time developing a a new diagnostic test um, using genomic technologies for cancers of unknown primary, which I will maybe speak a bit more about later in the interview. From there, I, I did a, uh, some more research um, as a postdoctoral scientist, and I finally found my way into working on rare cancers. I thought this is a very important area, and I guess at that time the opportunity arose because I was working with someone who was treating patients with rare cancers using a fairly novel type of treatment. And I worked in a lab, this was with uh, Professor Rod Hicks, and I started working on neuroendocrine tumors. That became a major 
focus of mine. Last two years, I started my own lab uh, at the University of Melbourne, Centre for Cancer Research. I didn't have to go too far from the PMAC because we're co-located in the same building in the, what we call the Victorian Comprehensive Cancer Centre. This allows me to continue my great research with uh, collaborators, clinical colleagues and other scientists at the PMAC. Wow, that's quite diverse, and I don't, I don't reckon there's, um, that's just luck. It sounds like a lot of hard work in there as well. So, do you mind just telling us a little bit about neuroendocrine tumors and cancer of unknown primary, and and why you consider them rare? So, yeah, so this is the two major focuses uh, of my group, um, what we call NETS or neuroendocrine tumors, and and cancer of unknown primary. They're very different diseases. They have a very small overlap, I guess, in terms of the biology. The NETs are a rare disease by definition based on the incidence of those tumours. They're quite a heterogeneous or diverse group of cancers that can arise in just about anywhere in the body. Major subtypes come from places like the pancreas and other endocrine organs such as the adrenal gland, also from the gut, uh, the intestine and also the lung. So neuroendocrine tumours, as the name neuroendocrine suggests, it's really is conversion on the nervous system or intersection between the nervous system and endocrine system. So these tumours often produce hormones like the normal cell equivalent would. So there's some good therapies for these NETs. But patients, it's, it's generally thought to be an incurable disease in the long run. Um, some patients won't respond to treatment at all. We therefore need to find new treatments and we need to understand why patients don't respond to the available treatments. So with CUPS, this is a very different disease entity. It's really defined by absence of a non-primary tumour. That's where the tumour originally arose, which, which organ did it come from? And they, this happens in about 2 to 3% of, of um, new cancer diagnoses. And these also represent a very heterogeneous or diverse group of cancers. They can come from many different sites, from the gastrointestinal system, from the reproductive system and uh, the lungs and, and other sites. And so really the focus here is how can we use genomics to better diagnose these tumours? Can we resolve the primary site? But can we also find something in the DNA, a mutation which might make that cancer responsive to a new type, type of targeted therapy? So that's really the, the goal of the, of the CUPS or Cancer Unknown Primary Project. It's really a very translational project that we have underway. So neuroendocrine tumours, or NETs, come from a cell that normally is signalled by the nervous system to secrete hormones. And a cancer of unknown primary origin, or CUP, is just that. We don't know which cells it has arisen from. Sadly, at the moment, CUP patients have one of the lowest survival rates for cancer in Australia. Firstly, do you mind explaining what you mean when you say genomics, please, Richard? Yeah, so genomics is really an extension on the on the term genetics. So I'm sure that many people understand term genetics. That would be typically used in the context of um, something which is hereditary, something which is passed on between generations. So genomics is not looking at a single gene, but genomics covers the entire genome. So all of the genes in the genome of an individual. Not only that, but the way in which these genes interact with each other as well. So it's, it's more encompassing than just looking at a single gene or a single mutation. We're looking at the whole system. Uh, genetics is looking at a single business. Genomics is like looking at all the businesses in the city and the way in those businesses interact with each other. So genomics is really underpinned by DNA technologies. So this is what's really driven the genomics field over the last 20 years. 
is the ability to survey the entire genome in a single test in a high throughput manner. And so this is what a lot of your research is focused on, isn't it? Correct. So, yeah, so that's genomics is, as, as the name suggests in my, the name of my laboratory, the Rare Disease Oncogenomics Laboratory, we use DNA technologies to understand cancer, what is driving these cancers, what is the history of that cancer, what potentially can we treat a patient with based on the changes in DNA or the changes in the activity of a gene in the tumour cells. Okay, that's really fascinating. And so are you focused with your oncogenomics in your lab? Are you focused on these two primarily because they're rare? Yeah, so it's somewhat, I guess, they're, they're brought together, these two diseases, because they, rare, they are rare. The way I like to think about CUPSO is that they're really the a rare, rare examples of these probably more common cancer types. So they're unusual presentations of this disease. It makes them very hard to understand or to diagnose. So I guess in essence, both of them are a composition of many rare tumours. It could be that by understanding those subtypes, we could we could afford a better treatment to treat individual subtypes, perhaps based on what the genetic underpinnings of those of that disease is. And I guess that's really what the essence of of what genomics has enabled us to do over the last twenty years is to understand really this hidden um, complexity within the diseases and then identify new groups or subgroups within what was once been together as a single entity. And so this has potential to really change the way we treat not just these two broad groups of cancers, but all cancers. We're more likely to be able to treat them with more specificity. That's correct. I mean, I think that in time, and it's been implemented now to a certain degree, but we apply uh, some of these new technologies such as genomics, genomics being a, a major one, that we will apply DNA sequencing and some other genomic technologies to these, these patient samples that will allow us to then identify a particular subtype within that disease and then, then apply a specific therapy that we know might, may be more effective on that subtype. There is a fair bit of science involved with this topic, so I think before we continue, I should talk a bit about mutations. A mutation occurs when a section of DNA is changed or damaged. When cells in the body are replicating, they have to copy their DNA and sometimes they get it wrong and the mechanisms in place to proofread the copy miss the error. This means the cell has a strange or new section in its DNA which can cause changes in the way it functions. Mutations can be germline, which is they are passed on from parent to child, or somatic, which means that they remain within the cells of one person. Most, most cancers are caused by mutations which are acquired and not inherited. The genes we understand most about in terms of heritable forms of cancer, they're affecting single genes at the time. And this will give some predisposition to developing disease. But for, for a cancer to develop, it must acquire multiple mutations. It's, it's thought that cancers need somewhere in the in average of around five key mutations in cancer genes to cause the cancer. So most of the mutations are caused during the during the person's lifetime in, in specific cells of the body. And this happens somewhat randomly, but it can be accelerated by exposure to, say, UV sunlight or to smoking and other, other types of carcinogens as well. So I guess it's important to... To, to think that essentially in, in the context of immune response, 
the immune system response is really against things that are being acquired during the patient's life, not what they've inherited from, from their parents. Okay, so it's a combination of the mutations you're born with and, and your genetic history, I suppose, of, of and predisposition to certain cancers and the DNA damage you accumulate in your environment over your, the course of your life. Melanomas have lots of mutations because of the sun damage that people will, will be exposed to over their lifetime it causes lots of DNA damage cells and not all that damage is repaired. So this then becomes mutations in the cell. In lung cancer, this happens because in many instances of smoking tobacco, that will also cause lots of mutations in the cells as well. And so these tumours tend to have high mutations, but like in the, in the skin cancer, those mutations may be seen as foreign to the immune system. The more mutations there are, the higher the chance there is going to be something that's seen as foreign and, and will induce this really strong immune response. Okay, so what types of therapies are we looking at? Like, have we got some out there already that are looking and, and focusing on these mutations? Yeah, so there's some great examples already in first-line treatments for cancer patients where you use a targeted therapy based on the mutational profile of that tumour. A very good example of that is melanoma. So around 40% of melanomas, maybe even greater, have a mutation in a gene called BRAF. And so if we find a mutation in BRAF in a melanoma patient, they would get a specific drug targeting that mutation. And I guess that's one type of therapy where we use targeted, what we call targeted therapies, perhaps a, a small molecule inhibitor, which will target that mutant form of a protein. And another type of therapy, which is really gaining traction now, is called immunotherapy. And this really involves not targeting the tumour, but targeting the immune cells themselves, uh, reactivating immune cells, which are, are there and they, they want to do their job in terms of eradicating the tumour, but they're stopped from doing that because they become what we call exhausted. So we can, we can treat the immune cells and, and make them active again to, to eradicate the tumour. So this does have a link somewhat to genomics as well because we know that patients who have or cancers which have a high mutation burden or called mutation burden, these patients are more likely to have a better response to immunotherapies. And so what we can do is to DNA sequence the tumour, look at the number of mutations and perhaps that can be used as a biomarker for uh, applying immunotherapy. So does a higher mutation count render a poorer prognosis or is that not necessarily the case? In terms of prognosis, uh, I guess in the absence of immunotherapy, um, that, can be, that can be variable between diseases. What we do know is that patients who have a higher number of mutations, they tend to have a stronger immune response. The more mutations you have, the higher the likelihood is the immune system is going to see the cancer cell as being foreign and will then try to eradicate it from the body. So targeted therapy involves drugs that target a specific mutation rather than, say, chemotherapy, which is a generalised treatment and stops all body cells, even the skin and fingernail cells, from dividing. For example, trastuzumab is used for HER2 mutations, most commonly in breast cancer. And for a patient with a lot of mutations in their cancer cell, rather than using a lot of specific targeted therapies, you'd be probably better off coaching the immune system to recognize those cells as foreign. One example of this is Keytruda, which is a PDL1 inhibitor and used to treat multiple cancer types. So we've got, for example, in cancers of unknown primary, we think that immunotherapy is likely to be a very important type of treatment going forward because really you can treat patients 
almost in a what we say a tissue agnostic way and, and you don't really need to identify a specific mutation these these drugs are likely work across a good number of patients probably not all but a good fraction and what we need to do is to build our armament of all these different types of therapies that might work and and then choose which is the best therapy based on all the knowledge that we can accrue from doing things like DNA sequencing of the cancers. Coming up next, after these words from our patient support team. So this is one of the major problems with, with cancers unknown primary, that because we don't know where the patient's cancer has arisen, um, they may have limited access to some of these new types of treatment. And so that, that, that's a, one of the most compelling reasons why we need to um, resolve the diagnosis of these patients' cancer. Hello, this is Ailey at Rare Cancers Australia. How can I help you today? Hi, I was just wondering if you could help me with... Our specialist cancer navigators can help you with the challenges that come with a rare cancer diagnosis. Our services are free and there is no criteria for accessing support from us. We understand that every situation is unique and no two people are the same. If you have been diagnosed with a rare or less common cancer, our patient support team look forward to hearing from you. Call us on 1-800-257-600 or email support at rarecancers.org.au. Welcome back to Radio Rare. In the first half of this episode, Dr. Emily and Dr. Richard taught us about cell mutations and how we can use genome sequencing to map them out. Quite the step from the poisonous black hellebore plant we once used. They also spoke about a different form of treatment known as immunotherapy, which works on immune cells to enhance their function and ability to detect and remove cancer cells. We have certainly advanced far ahead of the use of leeches and other cure-alls. So let's join back with Dr. Emily and Dr. Richard as they look at how patients can access these treatments. Richard's research into cups and nets is just fascinating. Now we've heard about the types of drugs and how they work for rare cancers such as cups and nets, it's time to hear about what else happens behind the scenes and how patients can access these treatments. It's my understanding that the way you can access certain drugs on the PBS is if, say, you've got a mutation that's proven in your cancer and and the cancer is of that source, a drug might be approved for that particular cancer with that particular mutation, say BRAF with melanoma. Yes. How does that work then with accessing drugs on the PBS or accessing drugs full stop with cancer of unknown primary? Very difficult. So this is one of the major problems with, with cancers of unknown primary, that because we don't know where the patient's cancer has arisen, um, they may have limited access to some of these new types of treatment. And so that, that, that's a, one of the most compelling reasons why we need to um, resolve the diagnosis of these patients' cancer. I mean, there's, there's good examples of where a specific therapy can work based on the mutational makeup of that tumour, and those mutations may be the same between different types of, of, of different cancers. But there's also examples where a patient uh, drug might not work the two different cancers might have the same mutation, but it might not work in one cancer 
but it will work in the other. And we're still trying to understand the reasons for that. One of the issues with cancer non-primary is, is really access to drugs and even clinical trials as well. So it's not only the you know, PBS listing of drugs and getting affordable access to drugs, but also patients just being enrolled on a, on a clinical trial can be a problem if we don't know where that patient's um, disease is originated from. And this really stems from the fact that knowing the tissue of origin is really one of the most fundamental questions that's asked when uh, a patient will be diagnosed with cancer. Yeah, and you can't really get quick evidence and and good data when you have so few patients with one particular specific kind of cancer. So it's very difficult to get that data and proof to get funding for particular medications, isn't it? It is. I think, you know, so, I mean, there are trials that have been, that are underway now, they're called basket trials. So regardless of where that patient's cancer has arisen from, based on the mutation profile of that cancer, they will be given a, a, a specific drug. And we've got a very good trial that's underway internationally at this point in time from a, a company called Roche. And uh, this is called the Capisco trial, and it's still open um, in Australia at certain sites. And basically, the approach that they've taken, they don't try to resolve the tissue of origin of the cancer non primary. They do the mutation profiling, and based on the mutations, then they will get triaged to one of several different treatments. Roche, Roche has an, a, a good array of different drugs which target these different mutations, or perhaps they'll get immunotherapy, which, as I mentioned, is a, is a broader and, I guess, much more tissue agnostic approach. So there are opportunities for patients with rare cancers to get on to some of these basket trials. Whether genomics, when, whether we can, I guess, supply this as a basic principle that we just meet, do mutational profiling and we find a mutation, and regardless of where that patient's cancer has come from, we treat with a specific drug. We, we still need evidence whether or not that's better outcome for patients overall. And I think these types of evidence is really needed. There's a lot of activity underway in, in this space with the ambition to try and resolve this issue of, I guess, inequity for rare cancers as well, where patients aren't, aren't given access to drugs because, you know, we don't have the evidence in that specific disease indication that this drug is going to work. You know, this should be a good approach, but we still need that evidence uh, to make it happen. We had a clinical study working for since 2014, we call the Solving Unknown Primary Cancer Study, and this is called SUPER. We've recruited just over 350 patients and about two-thirds of those received a genomic test. The goal of our study is to show that patients do benefit in some way from this from these tests. And so these sorts of studies are really important to, to provide evidence that there is, there is actually a benefit to, to, to using these tests. So we're just, we're just writing up these studies now. I can't share, I guess, a lot of details about it, but there we've seen, I think, a good amount of evidence suggests that these Genomic tests are improving outcome for patients in, in many different ways. I guess in terms of survival, it's still a bit of a, an unknown in terms of how the patients have a better, better outcome. But even, I guess, just in terms of their, the, the psychosocial aspects of these diseases, these patients do quite poorly. There's a not knowing where their cancers have arisen from. So for patients with rare cancers, such as CUPS, Basket trials are one of the best options to gain access to treatment at this point in time. Your research with Roche and the Super Trial are behind this, 
and the data you collect will be pivotal in eventually allowing patients to access better treatment for these rare cancers. So what you're um, doing, it just makes sense to, to be looking at doing a test at diagnosis to work out the genomic the genomics of that cancer before going through scans and surgery and pathology and all of that to, to actually work out what kind of cancer it is. It, it kind of makes sense as a, you know, from a crude look at it, um, that it would save money in the long run. Yeah. So that's the, I guess, the health economics of it. And this is why these, you know, these types of studies are really important. We've got some health economics being done as part of the super study and really to show that, you know, there is a is a financial benefit to doing this as well as a benefit for the patients as well. And these are sort of the two key things, I guess, that you know, policymakers would like to see to, to then, I guess, uh, consider reimbursement of some of these tests, but also allowing access of more targeted therapies for patients. We need more evidence. We need more studies to be undertaken to show this. We need the funding to support these types of studies. Absolutely. So what are you and your lab doing at the moment? What trials are you continuing and what types of things have you recently announced? Yeah, so I guess we have we have a lot of things underway. We have uh, almost an embarrassment of data that we need to write up at this point. So we have, as I mentioned, the super study. We're, we're at the point of, of writing up papers uh, publications about our experience with the super studies. We're working on a very large genome study of a very rare type of tumour called it's a, neuro, a neuroendocrine tumour called pheochromosotoma. It's a type of adrenal cancer that comes from or involves the sympathetic, sympathetic nervous system. Um, so it's an international study that we're we're uh, is very much maturing and we're, we're looking to write up. We've had some really interesting research we've done recently on a new type of genomic genomics called single cell genomics. So that's also been applied to this rare type of adrenal cancer. We're trying to understand really down to the single cell level uh, what's happening within the tumour and the the interaction between tumour cells and normal cells that also are neighbouring those tumour cells. And I guess one of the exciting things there, we we think we found a new gene that's, it's not a new gene, but it's potentially a new therapeutic target that we might be able to exploit. So we've got two other, in, in, a, in another disease type called Merkel cell carcinoma, it's a, a neuroendocrine skin cancer. It's, it's a rare type of skin cancer, but it's actually, not surprisingly, it's more abundant in Australia than it is in, in anywhere else in the world. And there it's been shown over the last few years that immunotherapy is a very effective treatment for this type of cancer, but not all, not all patients will respond, which is unfortunate. But what we want to do is trying to find new ways in which to treat those patients who don't respond. So we're going to combine two treatments in the clinical trials is funded by the Medical Research Future Fund and it's being led by an oncologist, Shanine Sandu at the Peter Mac. And Shanine's going to combine, uh, her idea was to combine uh, what we call peptide receptor radionuclide therapy. Can you please explain peptide radionuclide therapy? Effectively, what this is is it's like delivering radiation directly to cancers by targeting a protein on the outside of the cancer cell. So rather than ex- applying ex- like a radiation externally from the body, um, this can be applied like a chemotherapy. And it's a very effective, very well-tolerated drug. We have evidence to suggest that 
it works at least in some Merkel cell carcinomas, but combine, no one's looked at combining this with immunotherapy, so we want to combine the two things together to see whether or not patients who have failed on immunotherapy will respond to this combination. A similar well, second trial that we, we have planned also looks at immunotherapy and Merkel cell carcinomas, but this is about treating patients in a very early stage of diagnosis. We know that quite a few of these Merkel cell carcinomas will still go on to progress, and so it could be important to treat those patients quite early with immunotherapy, which will translate to a better outcome overall for these patients. So there are just a couple of snapshots of trials and different research projects that we've got underway and, and, and are quickly maturing. It's quite a lot going on in the lab, but I guess I've been in a very fortunate situation to have so many great collaborations with people and the opportunity to work on these things. So from what I understand, all of these methods are, are really hoping to sort of treat cancers more specifically and more targeted, like you were mentioning before, with that radiation. That means that potentially with these treatments, those who are having them will have fewer side effects than, than they get from chemo and radiotherapy in general because there's less damage to all the other systems in the body because it's not so broad. Is that right? Yeah, so this is the holy grail of, of, of treating cancer. It's a very difficult process because cancer cells are not so much different between a cancer cell and a normal cell and a patient. And so what we're trying to do is find the Achilles heel of that cancer. I guess that's really the principle of targeting mutations in, in cancer cells because we know that the mutations are only in the cancer cells. So effectively, if we can target that mutant form of a protein or a gene, then, then we might not be affecting other normal cells as well. So there's different reasons for why I think some things are you know, better tolerated by patients or they don't have an, as a profound effect on normal tissues as cancers. And it's quite complex um, and different between different drugs. I guess the radionuclide therapy is, is very well tolerated because the radiation is only taken to the tumour based on what the tumour is expressing and also works quite well because radiation tends to work, affects uh, tumour cells more than normal cells. There's a whole biology for why that happens. But you combine these two things together, radiation is a very effective treatment for cancer. The problem being is once that tumour is spread to many different places, it's very hard to then to, to treat every different site. But with using a systemic type therapy where we can inject that drug into a patient, it's going to, be, it's going to find its way to different cancers um, around the body. Um, so then we, therefore we're combining the effectiveness of a systemic therapy with the effectiveness of a, of a radiation type treatment. Rare cancer patients are just that rare. So putting together clinical trials just in Australia would mean very small trial numbers. Are you able to collaborate with overseas research organisations to use data from all over the world so to make the trial cohorts a bit larger? Yeah, so I guess the most the important thing about working on rare tumours is access to samples. I will say that just because something is rare does not mean that it's any less complex um, than something that's more common. And I've seen this quite profoundly in, in um, some of the neuroendocrine tumors we work on, very, very diverse in terms of their biology. And because they're rare and are so diverse, we want to ask very specific questions. We might need to narrow in on a very specific subtype of disease. I keep bringing up this term of subtypes. We, we like to split these tumors into multiple disease entities rather than looking at them as just one. 
And so one of the projects we're working on is looking at patients who have a mutation in a gene called SDHB. This is a, a, a gene which is really important for, I guess, metabolism within cells and produce, you know, making energy within cells. Mutations in this gene correspond to patients who have a, a poorer outcome. It's more likely that their disease will spread to other sites in the body. So to do a study like this just in Australia would be very difficult because the, because of the relative rarity we're talking probably something like one in a million people would develop a disease like this. And so through developing great collaborations and networks overseas, we've got buy-in from some pretty big centres in the US, like the National Institute of Health, who've provided quite a few biospecimens for our study. And really what we've, we've done is to apply whole genome sequencing to identify what, what underlies the, the, the behaviour of this disease to find mutations which might help with better prognosis and prediction of who, who might go on to progress. And I guess if we knew that, then we might have a, a different surveillance strategy in those patients over time. But we're also looking for, for new, new drug targets as well to treat these patients. They, like many metastatic tumours, they're, they're not curable. We might be able to control the disease for some time. Some patients will have a very good outcome, but many will eventually uh, will, will progress. So, yeah, I guess looking working on rare tumours, it's it's very important to acquire large numbers of samples, which is clearly not an easy job. And this is where we really need some some big collaborations worldwide to um to access enough samples. Wow, sounds like there are so many new exciting developments to come. So tell us, you mentioned earlier that you have a personal interest in all that is coming and and being developed in cancer treatments. So a very unusual circumstance. I started working on urendocrine tumours, not for, I guess, any particular personal reason. I could see it as a clear area of need and an opportunity that arose. But subsequently, a few years after I started working on, on, on this, I had realised that um, a hereditary form of neuroendocrine tumour was, was actually affecting my family, my extended family. And so we found that uh, I, I realised that my, my grandfather actually had developed a tumour and then subsequently some of my other relatives as well. And we put two to two, two and two together and realised that there must be something going on there, given that it's, there's a very specific link um, between this type of tumour and, and, and a mutation or a number of different mutations that you can acquire in different genes. And in fact, this mutation um, is related to the SDHB mutation that I spoke about previously. The likelihood of this happening is that I would be working on a rare tumour a rare subtype of a rare tumour and that this would actually be affecting my family is uh, is an extraordinary coincidence. It certainly brings some new meaning to my research and, 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 and trying to really push forward with new discoveries in this area and the ways in which we can, we can treat this type of disease. So fortunately for, I guess, my family that we are all very well at the moment, but this is... Uh, not always the case and so we really want to push forward with with our research to help this group of patients with uh, this type of disease. Gosh, that's incredible, the lineup of all those those rare factors. And it also, I suppose, I suppose being in a lab as a researcher, you can get caught up with the, the nitty gritty and the details, but it, it gives it a human face for you. And even though 
we're talking about rare cancers and it might not seem like in terms of health economics like it's it's bang for its buck if we spend money on these treatments you actually see the human side of it and and see that you know to to put these people through the ringer in terms of months of testing months of uncertainty even years of uncertainty without an appropriate treatment and then perhaps that treatment is not even funded highlights the importance of, of persisting in this research and finding better suited treatments and more targeted treatments. Yeah, certainly. I think, you know, beyond my own, uh, my own family's experience, my research has really brought me closer to the patients and I guess it's a, a privilege in, in many ways because I work on such translational areas we, we do have more interaction with patients and and certainly with, um, I guess, patient advocates. It's, very, it's become a very important part of research is actually to have that human element and to, and to have the patients and carers to contribute to steering the direction and to know what's important for the patients. So I see, I see this as a really positive and important aspect of our research now. So it can come from directly from uh, your experience with immediate family members. But I think I think most people working in the translational research space, in fact, any research space in cancer now would be brought much closer to, to the patient experience. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Richard, thank you so much for chatting to me today. Was there anything else you wanted to add before we wrap this up? I think we've covered quite a bit. And so I'd just like to say thanks, thanks again for um, the opportunity to, to share some of our work. You know, wish everyone all the best. Thank you again to Dr. Richard Tottill for talking to us today and thank you to all our listeners for listening. Catch you next week. So, what do you think? Is immunotherapy our next beacon of hope? With new methods of genome mapping, new methods of treatment that specifically target mutating cells, modern medicine has come in leaps and bounds since the dark ages thanks to the diligent efforts of doctors researchers scientists and engineers so to them we say thank you but also to you our listener thank you for joining us on this week's episode next time on radio rare dr emily isham will speak with garvin institute of medical research director and lab head of genomic cancer medicine professor david thomas And that means that only by bringing together the collective power of the planet's intellect can we solve these problems as fast as we would like. And you can see it in things like HIV, and you can see it in things like the response to COVID. The capacity of the human race to get together when faced with a really serious problem that becomes an urgent priority is quite phenomenal. Ready Rare is produced in-house at Rare Cancers Australia, and is hosted by Dr. Emily Isham and me, James Matthews. Thank you to this episode's guest, University of Melbourne Cancer Genomics Group Leader, Dr. Richard Tothill. The show is mixed by Alexander Smith, narrative writing by Ailey McMaster, reporting by Dr. Emily Isham. We are edited by Christine Coben and myself, and our episode music is from Audioblocks. You can listen to all of our episodes for free on our website, or you can also find us on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Simply search Rare Cancers Australia and click the subscribe or follow button at the top of the page. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn to keep up to date with written stories from patients, carers, and information regarding rare cancers. 
Thank you for listening and we'll be back shortly with our next episode. Bye for now.